How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Stephen Forth. Stephen is the co-founder, managing partner, and CEO of Abaca. He was named one of the top 10 pricing authorities in the world, not, not, not country, world, by OpenView Venture Partners. He's helped companies from Fortune 500 and startups drive returns and increase profits through pricing. Uh, on top of it, too, he's also the leader of more than 220,000 member LinkedIn Design Thinking Group which will be cool because we can talk a little bit how that affecting uh, or some some thoughts going around there with AI a little bit later. But Stephen, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Ryan, I'm really glad to be here. And I think we've got lots of interesting things to discuss. Oh, yeah, man. We got tons. I thought we were, I mean, I wish we would have been recording the pre-show. That could have been a whole episode by itself with some of the stuff we were talking. But um, but but we're going to, I know we're going to knock the cover off the ball right here. So before we get too deep into, you know, some of your expertise and the things that you're working on, I want to do a real quick revenue rundown to understand where you're at in the stage of the journey. So where are you guys at in terms of your ARR? So we are pushing up towards a million in ARR. Okay, cool. So million in ARR, what's your primary go-to-market strategy for revenue growth? So right now, uh, we are basically based on partners and inbound. Okay. So, uh, and by partners, we actually partner with the private equity. Um, and VC firms, oh, okay. and they introduce us to their portfolio companies. Uh, and then on the um, on inbound, uh, as you may have noticed, we are prolific on LinkedIn, uh, prolific um, in blog posts, not just on our own blog, but with um, other people such as OpenView uh, Ventures blogs, Arthur Ventures blogs. Uh, so right now we are almost entirely inbound and partner driven. Uh, we are planning to have a bit more of an account-based marketing motion um, starting next quarter. Okay, excellent, man. So, how like how how big is your team? Uh, small, so we have uh, twelve full-time people. Okay, so twelve FTEs, and then what's your what's your solution exactly? Can you walk us through it in a couple sentences and who it serves? Sure. Yeah. So. Basically, we help people design their price. Oh, well, we help SaaS, B2B SaaS companies design their pricing um, and then be able to communicate that price and the value associated with the price across the entire customer journey. So pricing is, is a lot more than about just sticking a number on a price tag. Pricing is, you know, what should the price tag go on in the first place? You know, how are you going to, when do you introduce the price? How do you gather the data to justify the price, not just when you're doing the first sale, but when you have to do your renewals and your upsells? So in order to support all that, we have a software platform called Valio uh, that is for pricing and customer value management. Because for us, value and price come together. Okay, excellent. I love that. Uh, and, and so when you say value management, like what exactly do you mean by that? Just to, to clarify, so we have some context. Yeah. So um, we're talking specifically about the economic value that a company provides to its customers. So generally in the sales process, um, some vague um, promises are made um, about how we're going to create value for you. Let's take cybersecurity, an, an area that you know well. What is the value of a cybersecurity solution? 
And this is, is, is kind of a tricky one, right? right? Because it's a bit like insurance. Uh, you only know that your cybersecurity system is working when it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, so one needs to construct um, a set of uh, a value model that shows, you know, this is what you, this is what you have at risk. Um, this is what you have at risk without our solution. And with our solution, your risk goes down by so much. And hopefully uh, you have data to show that. Uh, and then if you know that, then you know how much value you're creating and your price should be based on the value that you're creating. So we give you the, both the, the way to communicate this, but also the way to track the value that you're delivering across the life cycle so that when renewal comes up, you can say, hey, you know, we delivered this many million dollars of value to you um, over the past year and we only charged you, you know, for 10% of that. Okay, excellent, man. So how do you track that over time? Uh, I mean, and here's where my head's going with this, why I'm asking the question is like, there's a wide range of solutions where there's tangible outcomes that were a little bit easier identified, I would think, than other solutions. So mm -hmm. like, how have you codified that to make that repeatable and scalable with your, your customers in the B2B side? Yeah, so the first thing we do is we build a value model for them. Okay, gotcha. Um, and they, they, you know, they can build a value model themselves on our platform, but let's face it, there are very few SaaS companies uh, that have the expertise or the interest in building a value model. That there are some, usually larger ones, but but most do not. So we build the value model for them, and a value model is a it's a set of equations uh, that define how you're giving value. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those equations, they have variables where it actually has data that comes out of the solution itself. Remember, we're focused on SaaS companies and a little bit of uh, industrial internet of things. So the solutions that we support drive data. They're already driving data. And if they don't have it in their own platform, they have it in their customer success platform, such as Appendo. So we wire the, the data that their solution is, is providing um, and our equations, uh, and that gives you an ongoing estimate um, of how much value you're actually delivering to your customers. Gotcha. Okay, yeah. Go ahead, Brigitte. And the question is, how much of that value should you capture in price? Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're going to tell us. What, what is it? What, what's the, what, like, and, and you know, here, here's what I want to ask, because, like, you gave me your back backstory about, you know, some of the value pricing consulting that you did in a previous life and, and how that kind of works. So like, how do you, cause you always hear that, just give value, just give value, right? You hear that old like generic watered down approach to it. But one of the things that, that I've seen personally, Stephen, and I'm sure you probably see it all the time. And, and like, I see sales organizations that will sell a client to something. These are big companies. Sometimes they're a hundred million dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Or they'll have repeatable sales motion, They'll, they'll get consistent big customers, yet they are not quantifying the outcomes that they're creating for the customer. Uh, not even after the fact. Not, they don't even know what it was after the fact, right? And so, yeah, I, I, go ahead. What were you going to say? Well, I, I actually think it's, it's probably just as common that you know, value promises are made before the fact. And maybe there's some sort of ROI calculator that's used. Uh, and then it gets thrown away. And nobody at the uh, vendor ever looks at it again. So they don't 
you know, the, the implementation and customer success teams often don't know what value promises were made. Uh, and nobody's tracking to see if they're actually being delivered uh, until you have to renew or until you want to upsell. Uh, and then all of a sudden this becomes an issue. And at that point, it's too late. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, good salespeople, you know, are, are actually pretty good at selling and quantifying value. The best salespeople do that instinctively. The breakdown is in two places is, you know, the best salespeople are not all salespeople. So there's a, a, a tier of good salespeople who need support, who need to be helped in quantifying value and coming up with the value story. But that still only gets you halfway there because then what you need to do is, is bridge that gap from sales to implementation to customer success and make sure that customer success is gathering the data that's needed to show not only did we promise value, we actually delivered that value to you. And that's what our platform does. And, and you know, we're, we're not alone. Um, there are a couple of other uh, important companies in this market. Uh, so this is, this is an emerging category. Um, and I think it's going to become a central category for uh, B2B companies over the next few, few years. Because you know, the economic environment is tightening, interest rates are going up. Uh, it's more and more important to be able to demonstrate the value that you're delivering um, in order to justify the price and to justify the renewal. Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. Okay. So yeah. So Stephen, I totally agree with you, man, because like I see it all the time where, you know, or actually I think it was Deloitte. Deloitte did a study on this maybe two years ago, right? In the B2B space, what are the top three criteria that buyers are making decisions on specifically for mid-market plus deals? Um, and what it came down to was it came down to, was it customized for them? You know, was it relevant at the time? Right. And were there tangible outcomes identified from the solution? So if that's what people are expecting, and I, I see it more and more, people people want outcomes. They're tired of buying soft software. I should say soft software with uh, soft ROIs. But like from your perspective, like what's the exact framework you use for quantifying value in terms of a deliverable for a company? And like if you could break it down into like four or five steps, or like what's your mental model at least for looking at that um, through that lens. Yeah, so there's there there there's a very formal um, approach to this that's been developed uh, more in industrial B two B over the last twenty years, uh, led by a guy called Tom Nagel, uh, who wrote a wonderful book called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. Um, and what we've done is we've taken Tom's ideas and we've codified them into software, and then made them directly relevant to um, software as a service companies. So specifically, there are actually, there are six categories of value driver. So there, there are really only six ways that you can make your customer's business better. 
You can help them grow their revenues, something that you're an expert on. You can help them decrease their operating costs. You can help them decrease their operating capital. Now, two years ago, nobody cared about operating capital because interest rates were so low. Today, people are starting to care. Uh, you can defer, um, help them defer capital expenses or, or reduce capital expenses. You can reduce risk, which is what cybersecurity companies do. And you can increase optionality, um, increase the number of options that a company has for its business, uh, which is what a lot of design firms are, are able to do. Now, within that, there are specific equations. So, for example, on the revenue side, you can put more into the top. You can improve conversion rates. Uh, you can accelerate uh, pipeline velocity mm -hmm. um, and so on. So for each one of those value driver categories, there is a small set of equations. And our software, we've coded all those equations mm -hmm. in. Okay, gotcha. And each one of those equations has variables, right? And you can connect that, your, your software, to our, our software so that we're, you're always getting the variables updated. So this, this works best in cases where you can collect the data on your own system, feed it into our models, and then our models will calculate the value for you. Love that, man. I think that's great. So what do you see as, or let me ask you this, maybe, maybe I, I'm changing the question I'm going to ask you so I get a better answer. So are there a predominant, like one or two out of those top six value drivers that are most consistently looked at? Um, or I should say prioritized by companies and when they're making decisions on, on, on buying solutions, or is it variable depending on kind of the economy or what's happening uh, in the world at, at that time? So I, th I think it depends on the intersection of what's happening in the economy um, and what the vendor sells. So for example, um, cybersecurity companies, um, you, you have to address the, ri address the risk value drivers. Um, if you don't, yeah, and I've seen cybersecurity companies try to justify their price just on ways that they reduce um, operating costs, and they're leaving a huge amount of money on the table. So it depends a little bit on the type of solution, um, and but it also depends on what's happening in the economy. So right now, there are more and more companies worried about uh, operating capital. And, you know, what happened on Friday with Silicon Valley Bank, you know, just mm -hmm. sort of calls this to, to attention. So if you have a solution that can um, reduce operating capital, perhaps it accelerates collections, um, perhaps it factors, uh, you know, factors the money better, um, you know, reduces interest rates, allows anything you can do that will allow people to collect faster. All of a sudden, that's really valuable. So, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. it's... It, it's not one or the other, it's the intersection and it will be different for each um, software category. Yeah, I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so like shifting gears a little bit. So when people are looking at it, obviously we're going through inflation right now with where we're at. Uh, one of the top questions that comes up all the time are, how do I raise prices, right? So mm -hmm. what's your perspective on that? And what have you seen work really well to help other organizations raise their prices to keep in alignment with inflation that's happening? Yeah. So I think that the first thing you need to, to do is realize that just because there's inflation in the general economy 
does not give you a, a free pass on raising prices. Right. So the, the, the first question you should ask is, how is inflation affecting my customer's business? Yeah. And you know, in some sectors, inflation is actually helping your customer's business and they'll be more um, you know, open to a price increase. In other um, industries, inflation is killing them. And if you try to raise prices, they're just going to say, oh, you know, sure, you know, prices are going up, but that just means I can't afford you. So the first thing you should do, when you, and, and you should be doing this anyway, is segment your customers um, across two dimensions. One is, how much value am I providing to my customers? And has that changed? And then the second uh, you know, dimension is, how much value are my customers providing back to me? Which we like to calculate through the lifetime value of a customer. Um, and how is that changing? And that will give you a nice sort of like, you know, four by four matrix. So if, if you have a set of customers that you are not providing value to and they are not providing value back to you, you should ask if you even need those customers. Yeah, love that, man. So simple. And, you know, the top right quadrant are people that you provide lots of value to you and you're getting lots of value back to them. Fantastic. But you always need to keep the momentum going up and to the right. So you should be asking, how can I provide them with more value? And how do I get some of that value back? Yeah. That leaves your other two segments, right? So you've got one segment where you're not providing them with enough value and they're giving you lots of value. Raising prices for those people, mistake. First thing you should do is figure out how do I, um, you know, how do I get them more value? And there's that bottom right quadrant where you're providing lots of value and for whatever reason, you gave too many discounts, you haven't communicated the value, there's lots of reasons why you're not getting enough value back. That's where you have to um, start by raising prices. Love that, man. So if, if, I mean, just in a real succinct way, I mean, what are the top two or three industries that are positively affected from inflation that you're seeing right now? And what are the ones that are getting hurt the most? So this is kind of weird, but generally speaking, um, people in finance benefit when interest rates go up. Mm -hmm. Silicon Valley Bank, of course, being the exception. <laughs> but um, you know, generally banks um, and, and finance generally are more profitable um, in higher interest rate environments because they have a spread business and the higher the interest rates, the bigger the spread, the more money they're making. Um, then there's the sort of things that are sort of highly resistant um, to any sort uh, to inflation, um, the health, the whole healthcare sector, you know, the, the, the healthcare sector, you know, you know, people are, um, you, we have to have healthcare. So, uh, Companies in the healthcare sector have been fairly successful in raising prices. Um, places where it's harder to uh, to raise prices are place are, are anywhere where it's discretionary spending. So if I can do without you right now, I will. Uh, and then um, you know the the other thing that's really required is a lot of differentiation. Why is my solution better than the alternative? And in markets that are very mature where there's not a lot of differentiation. And I would argue that CRM um, is now a market oh, yeah. like that. 
You know, I, I don't really care if you're on Salesforce or HubSpot or Microsoft Dynamics or any one of the two dozen other clones out there. Um, I get pretty much the same value. Uh, so in commoditized markets, and every successful market eventually gets commoditized, um, you know, prices are really driven by the competition. So, you know, and, and remember, when you look at your customer base, you probably have some customers that are benefiting um, from the changing economy and other com- customers that are hurting. Treating them all the same way um, is not going to have a good outcome. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense, ma'am. Well, so I had it, but first of all, I mean, let's shift gears again. How did you get a group up to 220,000 people on LinkedIn for design thinking? Like, how did that start? How did it grow so much? Like, I think it's fascinating because from what I hear or what I've seen, there's not a ton of really hyperactive groups on LinkedIn. And it sounds like that one's, um, you know, grown quite a bit. It sounds pretty active from what you're telling me. So how did that happen? Well, I, you know, I, I think um, this is a uh, an example of uh, a power law. So the more people that join a group, the more people want to join it. Mm-hmm. So there is a couple of tipping points um, in LinkedIn groups. Now, I think the first tipping point is around 2,000. Mm-hmm. So getting a group to 2,000 is always going to be hard. You know, you need um, either some external catalyst um, or it needs to be a super hot topic. But getting that those first 2,000 people is really hard. Once you've got 2,000, it, it, it starts to build a bit of momentum. Um, you start getting better content. You start getting richer discussions. Um, and more and more people want to join it. Then there's another um, tipping point at about 100,000 when, you know, you sort of feel this change again. Um, there, there's probably one in between 2,000 and 100,000, but it's a big you know, range. Just working, off, just working off my memory, um, you know, my, my own experience of growing this group. Um, when all of a sudden, um, you know, you go from having, you know, 100 people applying a month to over 1,000. So we regularly get more than 1,000 people um, joining the design thinking group every month. Oh, wow. And um, so, you know, there's, it really is a, an example of a power law, um, or you know, if I was going to use uh, network science uh, terminology, uh, preferential attachment. So the more successful you are, the more successful you will be. But the other, you know, sort of critical thing is is I think you need to um, filter uh, the group members. So we review. So my team reviews each person that that applies, and. Um, we don't allow any companies to to join the group, so you can only join as an individual. Uh, and we don't allow anyone with less than ten connections to join the group. Um, and we are pretty strict about keeping out, you know, about kicking out people with bad behaviors. Um, and in you know any group of two hundred thousand people, you're going to get some bad behaviors. Oh yeah, yeah. And then the other thing we do is is we're really um, rigorous about um, screening content. So, you know, we screen everything that goes in. Uh, We don't allow, you know, we largely do not allow um, what we refer to as link spam. You know, we we only put up things that we think people might actually want to talk about. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah, and and we're, we're quite strict about that and which annoys some people. Um, but tough. <laughs> so. Makes sense, man. 
So, you know, the other question I had for you is, what is the impact that you think AI is going to have in the in the B2B space? Well, we all know that old Mark Andreessen quote, right? Software is eating the world. Well, AI is eating software. Mm-hmm. So um, every aspect of the of B2B software will be touched by AI. Uh, and whether it's product development and user interface design, whether it's you know data science, whether it's marketing, whether it's pre-sales, you know, every everything that you can imagine will be touched by AI within the next, certainly within the next 10 years, probably within the next five years. And we we sort of hit a tipping point with uh, the launch of Chat GPT. You know, you know, Chat GPT and um, large language models have been around for you know quite a while. They're not new. Uh, 2017 was when Google published its, um, you know, its research into transformers. Uh, but it, it took a while for them to reach critical scale, but they've reached critical scale. And GPT-4 is being launched this week, I believe. Today. It was launched today. today? Yeah, okay, I, yeah, I had access to it because like, I've been looking at all the revenue applications for it and, and how it can be used. So that's multimodal, multimodal, if you will, right? So we got yeah. video... I should say picture, text, and video, right? Where yeah. it's, it's those capabilities. So, um, yeah. So that ought to be interesting. I mean, like, what's <clears throat> so? What do you think are the most? And you, you probably see a lot of this. You know, we got two hundred and twenty thousand people in the design thinking in the product area. I guess, like, what do you see are the most interesting use cases that companies, specifically SaaS companies, are starting to use it for right now? Yeah. So today or to, or tomorrow. So let's start with today. Yeah. <laughs> so today, um, I think it's incredibly powerful um, at the early stages of design and innovation. So smart people are able to use um, ChatGPT and Dolly and all of these other such, uh, solutions to generate ideas and to explore far more ideas far more quickly than they ever could have before. And that's fantastic. I mean, I, and I, I've actually got a quote from a designer who said, this, this, is, this is great. Um, and he was referring specifically to Dolly, I think. But, you know, I am now able to explore more ideas faster than I ever could before. Uh, and, you know, that, that's important uh, because the, the early, you know, innovation has a funnel too. And this is opening up the top end of the innovation funnel. But I think very quickly, we're going to get to a place where, you know, um, AIs are going to be useful in weeding out the dumb ideas. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, you know, there, there's, as, as, I, as you know, there's already a whole new job category that's been created right over the last couple of months of, you know, prompt engineer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, I, I think over, I, 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 last time I looked, there were over a thousand job openings for prompt engineers. Really? Thousand, yeah. really? That's interesting. What what companies have are is it B two B SaaS companies that are other companies you're seeing? It's all over the place. Um, um, product design companies, um, lot all the major, uh, you know, all the large um, SaaS companies, you know, the the big consulting firms, you know, the Deloitte's and McKinsey's and Simon Kuchers, all of those people um, are are starting to ha- train and hire SaaS uh, prompt engineers hmm. because you know. Uh, 
you know, it, it's just like learning how to use any piece of software, right? You have to learn how to use chat GPT effectively. Yeah. And your input to chat GPT is prompts. Yeah. No, I, I could see that. I mean, like there's prompt libraries popping up where people are trying to monetize them. Some of them are good, some of them are crap. You know what I mean? Um, there's marketplaces. There, there's actually a, a marketplace, at least one um, marketplace for prompts. Oh, if yeah. There's multiple prompt, marketplaces. You've got a good prompt, you can go out and, and monetize it. Yeah. Which is interesting because like I started experimenting with that and, and applying like the domain expertise I have from I don't know, 20 years plus of sales. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's see how this could apply for that, you know, or apply it to that. And there's, there's some really good outputs. I shared it. I had a post that went viral because what I did is I dissected just kind of like the mental model that I used when I'm working with C-level executives, right. To understand how they're evaluated, like what KPIs are evaluated on, how they make decisions, what are their priorities, and then I, I layered that on top of with like how do what are the challenges they have with those, and then how do they emotionally feel when they have those challenges, right? And so it was a, I mean, it was yeah, maybe like a five prompt stack that people love because it was hitting on marketing and sales, and most folks don't really think of it in that way. So I, I think there's a massive market for people leveraging their domain expertise through prompts if they learn how to and actually experiment with it to ask it in the right way. You know what I mean? Yeah, so. yeah absolutely. Um, but, you know, again, thinking in the, the sort of sales situation, uh, you know, I think very quickly uh, we're going to be able to construct prompts or, or find out, figure out ways to um, rephrase prompts so that they become very good at objection handling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so. You know, you'll be able to train um, your AI on your customer um, and CRM and social media data uh, and, and your own application so that it becomes very good um, at, you know, asking a couple of questions of, of a person and then coming up with the right response to an objection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And, you know, objection handling is a big part of B2B sales. A lot of people struggle with it. And having a uh, an AI assistant um, on the side to help you with objection handling, I mean, I, I don't think we're talking like three years from now. I think we're talking like today. Yeah, like I'd say like three months from now. At the, the yeah, point. yeah, it's, it, people are doing this already. Yeah. No, that's it. I mean, that's a good take. So, what do you think are the biggest dangers with AI right now? Well, I, so this, I, I think that the really big danger. So I've just you know, said that um, AI has the potential to open up our brains to more possibilities, but there's also a risk that it's going to, um, over time, is going to narrow the possibilities. Hmm. Because you know, think of what a large language model is, right? It's a probabilistic distillation of the knowledge of the internet. And you know, if it's possible that large language models will evolve so that they all converge, so that Google's is similar to OpenAI's is similar to what the Beijing Academy of Artificial Intelligence is doing. They, by the way, have a huge large language model. Um, that all of these will converge, and will get, you know, things will get more and more similar. And I think that would be a, a, a huge loss to to humanity. Um, it's equally possible, though, that you know we'll become aware of this and we will design and build 
large language models that diverge. So we get more ideas and more diversity. So I think that's an open question. But convergence, I think, is a real risk. That's a good point, man. Uh, I really never thought of it from that perspective. So yeah. and, go ahead. So, yeah. so, so I, I think that that's you know the thing that concerns me most. I don't worry about people's work being replaced. Uh, I, I think that it will create more jobs than it uh, destroys. Prompt engineer is an example, right? Six months ago, who knew that there was a job prompt engineer waiting to spring into existence? <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly didn't. Uh, I don't think the people at, who created Chat P GPT even knew that that was going to happen. Yeah, you're right, man. I mean, it's a really good point. It's a really good point. So, um, well, unfortunately, Stephen, we are up on time, man. It was a pleasure talking to you. It was really interesting just hearing how you quantify values and outcomes for your customers to create pricing models to support that. I think that's awesome. And I, I think you're going to kill it because I see such a major gap in the marketplace right now with that in terms of people being able to convey that. And I think the primary reason for that is because they don't know how to quantify value, right? So yep. bright, road ahead of, bright road ahead for you in Abaca. Um, but where can people find you? Where can they learn more about you and what you're doing? And then we'll wrap things up, man. Yeah, so um, I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Um, Steven with a V fourth. Uh, I'm probably the first uh, person that will come up for almost everyone. Uh, and uh, my email is stephen at ibaka.com. And that is I-B-B-A-K-A. Dot com. <laughs> dot That's com. it. So, all right. Well, thanks for being on the show, Stephen. It was a pleasure having you. I loved your insight, man. I love your perspective. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Uh, thank you, Ryan. It was great. Thank you for checking out The Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.